National Association for the Visual Arts is the peak body protecting and promoting the professional interests of the Australian visual arts. NAVA in Conversation is a series exploring the issues and challenges of working in the sector. We speak with artists, curators and administrators to gain insight into the experiences of contemporary practice and seek to propose ideas for change, progress and resilience in both local and global contexts. Welcome back to the NAVA podcast series. My name is Wesley Shaw. I'm a Ewan Dadawal Nurgal man. I am professional development coordinator here at NAVA. And this morning I'm joined by Genevieve Greaves, uh, filmmaker, extraordinaire, mother, curator, educator, and artist, who's going to be discussing some of her work at Museums Victoria and some ideas about decolonisation. Uh, we've also got Georgia Mokak joining us this morning. Hey, yeah, my name is Georgia Mokak. I'm a Jugan woman from Broome. I grew up on Ngunnawal and Nambri country in Canberra and now I'm living on Gadigal country here in Redfern. I am the First Nations Engagement Coordinator here at NAVA. Also do some freelance producing and writing and also co-host a content show on FBI radio called Race Matters on Monday afternoons. So on that note of, of freelance work, um, that Georgia mentioned. You're actually here in town on some official Art Gallery of New South Wales business. I am. Um, I normally live in Melbourne and Cullen Country, but I'm here in Sydney to do some work um, at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. I went around with some students a couple of days ago, high school students, and talked to them about decolonisation, which is pretty amazing. Um, yeah. It's kind of a little bit high-level theory, but they really got it, I felt, and kind of applied it to artwork, which was pretty amazing to watch. Yeah, it was beautiful seeing them walk through the old courts and really critique some of those John Glovers and the really early colonial colonial paintings, which was a little bit challenging for them, I think, at first. It was, and yeah. yeah. it was a, it was good. They kind of shifted the way they thought and then shifted the way they moved in the second half of the day with... It's like experimental dance workshop with Ian Collis. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, fantastic it's a great day. program. What's it called? Uh, it's called JAMU. Yeah. I'll give it the official plug. So it's been running for 10 years now at the Art Gallery. Um, and it's a program that engages secondary Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students, um, trying to engage them with the visual arts. Yeah, that's what I love to see, sort of institutions opening the doors in that kind of way, you know, for particularly younger Koori people to come in and learn. It's good. It's really good to see. Because there's been quite a big shift down at Museums Victoria, hasn't there, with... Is it the Bunjalaka Centre there? Yeah, it's shifting. It's mm. going to be a long, slow shift <laughs> and take a long time. But we um, have a new CEO. I think she started maybe two years ago. And with new leadership, like the first woman to ever run the organisation in its you know, 150 year or so history, you know, it's pretty amazing. But she came in with the idea to transform the institution and it needs it, you know, it's an old colonial beast that's still sort of existing in some colonial ways and, and needs a change. And the way she's doing that is um, to put first peoples first. That's what she's talking about and how she's framing it. And what that means for the institution is something we're still working out. Like how does a sort of white scientific institution that's been operating in a certain way for a long time 
transform all that it does to put first peoples first. Mm. It's a challenge. And we're kind of at the early stages of trying to understand what that means and how um, we can shift this space into the future. So I'm on maternity leave from my job, which is head of First Peoples, and that was the new department that was formed by the CEO. So she merged Banjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre, which was always understood as the community space of the museum and came about because of really strong advocacy on the part of the community. And then what was called Indigenous Cultures Department, which was this Western scientific anthropological kind of Indigenous department, which was largely anthropologists. So what she did, because we had two separate Indigenous entities in the museum, is she merged them into what was called the First Peoples Department. So that's really new. It's like a year old or something. I was ahead of it and I got pregnant as I got the job, (laughs) which happens. And I was freaking out. (laughs) But she said to me, babies are really important. Of course they are. So I've got to have my baby and my um, amazing woman, Shannon Falkhead's in that job now and acting in it for now. And um, I'm sort of not ready to come back to full-time work. So I'm being brought back in to do the First People's Strategy work now and that we're at the very early stages of that and museums and institutions often do strategies and we've been having meetings where we're saying okay we've got to decolonize the process for the strategy (laughs) because the strategy is very linear it's like you do this you do that you do that and then you have a strategy it's like we can't do it that way you know we actually have to shift how the museum develops this strategy it can't be the same process that it normally undertakes and one of the first things we need to do which we haven't done yet is to actually work with our executive to get them on the same page and using the same language and the language I want them to start using and other people want them to start using is the language of decolonization which they're not using at the moment Um, so we have to educate them about what decolonization means and that's the sort of beginning point and then from there we can start to when they have ownership over this process and the way that we have to undertake it, we can start to undertake it. Because otherwise we're just creating a document that gets endorsed, it looks good, it makes the museum look good, but it's not actually doing anything that is really shifting ground. And this is an opportunity to shift ground. Because you've done some work previously with quite quite large institutions around decolonisation. How has that process worked? Well, yeah, I've only really de- like developed the language of understanding what decolonization is in the last few years so I've you know throughout my career sort of 20 year career I've done that work I've been with other people doing that work I've done it collaboratively in organizations in spaces but I didn't know that we were decolonizing Um, and that's just one lens you can put on this work as well you know there are different ways you can see it but it's a, a lens that I find really useful and I'm kind of developing a practice and a knowledge around that lens at the moment so when I first started working, I worked at the Koori Heritage Trust in Melbourne under Uncle Jim Berg and a whole lot of elders who ran that space. And that was a deeply decolonising space. We never called it that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a Koori space, you know. But it was also a deeply indigenised space. You know, the way that it worked was on cultural lines, you know. My staff, I was a young woman leading a team that included elders, you know. <laughs> Yeah. which is really hard to, you know, be a boss of someone culturally you're meant to be listening to. <laughs> Not easy, but um, that space was an incredible learning ground for me and I think in the work that I'm doing, I'm just trying to emulate that space as well, like recreate it, because it is very hard for us as Aboriginal people to 
to hold those spaces in our work, you know, because we're often working in white Western structures that aren't named as that, they just are, they're just normal structures, normalised, but they are white Western cultural spaces and we have to try and indigenise or decolonise or... So we have to push back against them, fight them or transform them or, um, you know, it's a huge, as we know, huge amount of work and a huge amount of extra energy in everything that you do so you can make sure it's culturally appropriate and doing the right thing for community. So, yes, I've been doing it for a long time, but I've only developed that language recently. And it's a process that involves time as well, I think. Like, you wear two different hats, in a sense, when you come from community. Mm. Let's say you've spent the morning out at Penrith with a wonderful group of women working Mm. on possum skin cloaks. You can't immediately come back into Mm. that institutional setting. It, It takes time to make that transition I think Um, and institutions need to understand that as First Nations arts workers and cultural workers there's there's a big divide in the way we think stepping into two different different spaces. Speaking of different ways of thinking and that term decolonize maybe sort of five ten years ago that was something that was very unfamiliar but increasingly that term has been used increasingly so but I also find that people use it in a couple of different ways, some of them more metaphorical and some of them more as a verb and some of them as a noun. Can you elaborate a little yeah, bit? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there, are, there are people who say there's a real danger, you know, at this point that decolonisation is used as a metaphor. There's a great article by Eve Tuck and I think, I can't remember his first name, but someone Yang. And um, the article's decolonisation is not a metaphor because everyone's talking about decolonisation now. You know, it's decolonise our schools and decolonise our art and decolonise this and that. And, and they said the danger is that it can be um, a settler move to innocence. So it can be a way of people making themselves feel better by using language. Same with reconciliation action plans mm. and you know, all, all of this stuff. There's, a real, there's real dangers in this space that people are doing the really surface tokenistic work of looking good and looking like they're meeting these targets and doing the right thing, but are they actually shifting power? Because what Tuck and Yang say is that decolonisation is about the repatriation of land and life. You know, that's what decolonisation is really. And, you know, so it's really about what are you willing to let go of, you know, in terms of power? What are you really willing to give back (laughs) and return, you know, whether it's wealth or land or opportunity or jobs or, you know, these institutions often do this work without really... Um, shifting themselves or giving anything up at all and and that's not decolonization really so yeah I think decolonization can be a, a tool that it's a way of looking at things it's a way of making colonization visible and that's something that we're not taught generally about in schools or we don't have access to information like colonizations like whiteness it's kind of invisible it's just everywhere it's just the new reality and the norm and the day-to-day life that we exist in but we need to make it visible and we need to actually make it visible and work against it. And that's how I think decolonisation can be useful. And that work can be done by not just First Peoples, but also non-Indigenous people as well. It's everyone's work. It's not just our work. Everyone can actually make colonisation visible and work to dismantle it. So, yeah, in terms of what you're saying, there is a danger and it's something we need to be really aware of because the term's being used really broadly and widely and we've got to be careful about how we use it. Just thinking then 
towards your work at Museums Victoria and around that First Nations display, like although it's still an early process, I think just thinking about those spaces because it's not just the artifacts and the objects and the remains that are that are colonised, it's the building itself and changing like the structure and the spaces within those institutions is really important and I think the garden down at what is it the Malari Malari the Malari yeah. garden there is stunning and you've got this beautiful online resource that talks you through each of the different plants and different trees and grasses and there's that link then between what's living in that garden and the artifacts that are behind behind that glass and I think a lot of people would take that for granted but as a First Nations person working into like walking into that space or working in that space having that living connection between them is really beautiful. Yeah, it's an incredible privilege to work in that space. And, um, you know, the Banjalaka Centre is such a beautiful centre and has come about because the community in Victoria really pushed for that space. And, you know, a lot of people have been working with the museum for a very long time to shift it. You know, there's been... Um, like I remember Uncle Sandy Atkinson was the first Aboriginal person to work in the museum, you know, way back in the day <laughs> and Uncle Jim all these people Uncle Albert you know um, who've been fighting for a long time to get that museum to do the right thing because they are you know sites of colonialism and I was really so lucky to be brought there in 2009 to work on that first people's exhibition it was such an incredible journey hard hard journey <laughs> so hard but um, Caroline Martin who's the manager of Banjalaka at that point she gave me the job or got me the job I worked for four years with a big team and a lot of First People staff to build that space. And we were all so conscious of what the power of that opportunity, you know, to, to create that exhibition for the next generation, for future generations, to present our culture in such a strong way. And we did it in, a, in an institution that wasn't ready for it. So it was really hard, you know, because there's a lot of pushback and people wanted those stories to be told in a particular way and we wanted it to be community-led and community voice, which is what gives it its strength and value and beauty and why it's won all these international awards now because it is all community stories. But, yeah, it was an incredible, incredibly difficult experience at the time. But it's interesting because sometimes these opportunities come up, you know, for you to make take some ground or to do something in a different way and we took that opportunity and I think that shifted the institution, you know. So... First Peoples, the exhibition, has helped us to get to this place where First Peoples are being put first because I think it showed the value of our culture and our way of doing things in a way that the museum didn't really understand. And, you know, we had a lot of um, blockbuster exhibitions at the museum. This was never considered a blockbuster, but visitation jumped after this exhibition because Australians want to hear these stories and they want to hear them from our voice not from the museum's voice or from the institution or they don't want to hear other people talk about us, they want to hear from us. And I think in the lead up to the 2020 project, like Georgia and I have been reading numerous documents from institutions across Sydney and that seems to be a talking point that for a very long time it's been someone else talking about First Nations histories and I think in the lead up to that, what's been happening at Museums Victoria is kind of exemplar for a way to go about dealing with such a contentious issue. Mm. Um, so it's very, like, 
Should we address it? It seems very... I would love to. Because, yeah. look, we're a long way from Captain Cook in Melbourne. Yeah. You know, like, Captain Cook doesn't get spoken about in the same way. Like, we do have his cottage in a park there, and we have a statue of him. But it's John Batman. Mm-hmm. He's, he's the man, you know, that people talk about the Melbourne as the sort of, you know, around that first contact, even though he wasn't first contact. But, but we wouldn't be talking about having any big commemorations about Batman and Melbourne. Mm. It just wouldn't happen. Why is that? It just wouldn't. It just, I think there's maybe, I don't know, like I don't know the answer, but history's so complex and I'm just surprised that, you know, in this day and age that people are focused so much on Cook. Mm. It's just one part of the story. He is a part of the story, of course, but the story is so much more complex than that. You know, and, and we still have a position where so many of our first people's heroes and survivors and, you know, people we look up to, their stories haven't been told fully at all. People don't know those stories. A lot of people don't know about Pemulwuy. They don't know about... I think they know more about Ben Along and probably Barangaroo. And, but there's still a lot of stories, like, do they know about... Um, who's the man who sailed with Matthew Flinders? Bungaree. Mm. You know, yep. people still talk about Bungar- about Matthew Flinders, but they don't talk about Bungaree. Like, there's just there's such a richness of stories here to be telling. Um, to be focused in on Cook, it just seems so limited, and it seems to be the continuation of that sort of myth building and nation building and nationalism, um, which you would hope we would have moved past at this point. Yeah, I think that's still something that I'm adjusting to. I mean, I've only been in Sydney for 18 months and it was definitely one of the first things that smacked me in the face. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of statues and a lot of references and even down at Circular Quay and you've got those fellas that dress up. The Captain Cook cruises. Yeah, yeah. Captain Cook cruises. It's, it's, it's pretty bizarre. And, yeah, coming from Canberra, which is mm. another little bubble, which... Mm. People don't talk about that name. But there's an opportunity there. Like mm. we've heard, well, I've heard Wesley Enoch speak about mm. the opportunity for there to be both sides of the story presented. Mm. He, he talks about Cook looking towards the shoreline, but then there's that also, also at that same same moment in time, looking back at the ship as well. Um, and yeah, that's true. And you know, and that's probably a really good way to see it because it is an opportunity. You know, like the money and the resources that are being shifted towards this storytelling, there's an opportunity to sort of subvert that and to tell other stories. So, and I'm all for taking those opportunities when they arise. You know, if you don't participate in that as well, then we'll, we will be excluded from it. Yeah. You know, so, you know, sometimes you've got to be on the outside pushing and saying, I'm not going to participate. And sometimes you've got to be on the inside saying, okay, let's, how do we do this in a way that benefits us as well? So, yeah. But it's a, I guess it's that idea that you spoke about before in terms of like the colonial state. It's not just First Nations people that have been colonised. It's everyone, it is everyone. is, is colonised. Yeah. So it needs to be, both parties need to come to the table in that conversation. So um, Yeah, I had a student um, who said to me, you know, teaching Aboriginal history and you know she came up to me one day and she said everything you say there's a voice in my head that says that's that's not right or it wasn't that bad or she said I've been taught to not listen to you (laughs) she said I've been taught to deny 
Aboriginal history and Aboriginal voice and truth. And that was like a really profound moment for me to think, you know, that she actually um, worked that out and could articulate in that way, but also that that's what's taught to people, <laughs> to, to not be open and to not listen and to not learn. And I think, I don't know if that's guilt or shame or, or Australian culture, but probably a bit of all of it, you know, or a bit of all those things intermingled. But there is a, a real resistance in Australia to hearing these stories and these histories. That's what we're still working with. It's changing, and you can see it changing with the next generation. You can so see this amazing openness. There's so much more material on the education system. You know, things are shifting, but it's still we still have to work hard yeah, to, um, to create understanding. And... It is, it's a slow process. Like you spoke about working on a project with Bruce Pascoe, what, a decade ago now. Mm. Um, and it's only really with his, his publication of The Young Dark Emu, yeah. there's these resources coming out that are going into primary and secondary yeah. institutions where previously like we'd get students coming in year 9, 10, mm. 11 and 12 and it was the first time that they'd heard mm these histories, these histories of violence and massacres and mm. you wonder how how kind of radical that shift or how confronting that shift would be from going for so long through your educational mm. career, mm. 15 years or so, and then being confronted with this, this new history or this, this real history. It's quite mm. a traumatic process for anyone, really. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's... Yeah, when we um, were opening First Peoples, we took these volunteers through from the museum and they're older people, you know, and um, largely white people. But we're in the, this section called 2000 Generations, which is all about the richness of, a, of First Peoples culture in Victoria, you know, like aquaculture systems, deep knowledge of country, you know, um, all this sort of stuff. It was this older man who would have been in his 70s and he had a tear in his eyes. You know, and he was like crying. And I said to him, "Are you okay?" You know, and he said, "I didn't know. I didn't know any of this. It wasn't even the massacres. It wasn't the stolen generations. It wasn't any of these things. It was just the richness and and occupation of these lands and the you know the sophistication of our cultures that made him cry. And it was it was a really amazing moment. Cause I thought, yeah, it, people just yeah they haven't been told. Mm-hmm. And it's. A really positive point as well. I think mm. having those histories come to light, we've moved, starting to move beyond that process of mourning. I think, and when mm. we think about the art sector and like that exhibition down at Acker, what was that? A lightness of spirit is the measure of happiness. Mm. You've, you've seen mm. the shift, this massive mm. step towards the the everyday, the beauty of Indigenous culture that mm. might seem mundane, but it's mm. it's. It's really beautiful. And I remember travelling around Gippsland a couple of years ago in Victoria and, you know, we talk about Bruce Pascoe and all these farmers, Australians, were looking for massacre sites and telling these stories. Um, they're all reading Dark Emu, all of them. They're like, have you read Dark Emu? Because, <laughs> you know, this is the thing, we're at this moment in time, so with climate change and the challenges we face, where Indigenous knowledge is more in demand than it ever has been. I think there's an awareness in Australia that Indigenous culture is survival for this country. You know? And it's in, in, like Gippsland is such an interesting place because wasn't he yes. the first? That's where Macmillan governor to be. He persecuted two white farmers for murdering an Indigenous woman. Like he was one of the first oh, to stand know. against 
that violence. Oh, was he? Mm. Yeah, I don't know that story. Yeah, I was down there looking at Macmillan, mm. um, who was a Scottish man who's commemorated all across Gippsland, and he was um, at the head of many massacres. Yeah, but mm. I don't know that story. That's an interesting story. Yeah. It's a troublesome spot down there, like down near August and yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of... A lot of terrible places, mm-hmm. a lot of terrible things that happen. But it's, you know, it's when the history is denied, the, the stories of people who, the white people who resisted, you know, um, white violence and who pushed back, they, those stories don't get told either. That's the problem. When you sort of just don't share that history, you miss all the complexity. You miss the people who work together, who, um, you know, work to save people, who um, actually... I don't know, brought people to justice. Not that that happened very much, but it did happen, yeah. We could talk all day about this. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the, you, you could, and there's a danger in that as well. Yeah. I think you've got to, I don't know, you, you carry carry that with you for a long yeah. time, and yeah. it's easy to get caught in that mindset. Like artists that have addressed those histories, it's been a prominent part of their practice, mm. and they... They reach a point. They need to step back, and they change. They change their shift. They change their practice, and they change their focus. Mm. Like James Tyler did a lot of work around massacre histories, but now is looking at the indigenising of the landscape around Canberra and around Ghana country. Mm. Uh, he's seen like Dale Harding shift from mm. the trauma in his matrilineal line to now looking at colour theory and mm. like, abstraction. There's yeah, mm. there's a necessity to move and take care of yourself sometimes. Mm. Yeah, because you carry a lot. Yeah, it's a huge burden. And there's a lot of artists who hold these histories and hold this knowledge and hold it for all of us, you know. I did an exhibition, curated an exhibition a couple of years ago called The Violence of Denial, which is about the denial of history, and that was with um, Vicky Cousins, Julie Goff, Marie and Diane Jones, and all of them, the way these women hold these histories is kind of incredible. Like Julie... She's done all this work now down at Tasmania for, what's it called? Dark Mofo. Yeah, Dark Mofo. Yeah, um, which I wish I could go down and see. (laughs) But, um, yeah, she's incredible. She's an encyclopedia, you know. She's, she's, She's history books. She's holding so much knowledge and uncovering it constantly and bringing it to light and... And all of those women do that in different ways. But there's there's many artists around the country who are holding those spaces. So their their role is so huge in terms of what they do and, and what they carry. And the burden of that is kind of immense. So you're right, yeah, people can't always can't always be in those spaces. You be you can be in them for a little while then you've got to go do something else and to look after yourself. Because self care is like um, all artists have to do self care but for you know, our people holding their stories to a whole nother level, yeah. Yeah, I guess that that's been a conversation for a little while. Yeah, around duty of care as well with institutions when it comes to looking after First Nations artists as well, especially living artists. Gee, yeah. That's a really important point, yeah, because we don't talk about it as duty of care. Like, other institutions it's no. not spoken about. But I guess just coming back to decolonisation needing to be everyone like duty of care from those institutions and with people in leadership positions with that power Mm. Um, because it can be really hard when you're working in an institution to get them to operate in a way that you need to look after people yeah even yeah in terms of payments in terms of 
time to be together, you know, mm. to look after each other or debrief or, mm. yeah, it can be really hard, yeah. Um, Genevieve, we also wanted to congratulate you on your elected position as the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representative for the NAVA board. Um, oh, welcome wow. aboard. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And thank you for your time this oh, morning. Yeah, it's I've been a wonderful, it. wonderful chat and we'll be sure to connect down, down in Melbourne. Sounds Thanks for good. having me. Thank you. Head to our website visualarts.net.au for more information on NAVA's advocacy and campaigns for improving the working environment for Australian artists and arts organisations.